And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the Crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the Crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Great for all generations. Oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Great for all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense. People want answers. They want to understand. They come to the crossroads and Jimmy gives them the plan. I said, gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Great for all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy at the crossroads making sense out of nonsense. Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Elections, current events, the broadcast master wrote just how to win. I said, Policy and market. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program. Getting started a little bit late. Sometimes you have gremlins in the system, some last minute scheduling changes. Sometimes you have both, but it is such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you here on the show. As always, thanks for joining us. A couple of special editions back to back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. And as always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. So coming up in the next segment, we will be joined here on the show that brings you engaging, intelligent talk, Sang Style, by David Harsani, senior writer at National Review. Talk a little bit about what's happening with Facebook. I mean, this is, this is crazy, where Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are trying to put a stop to protesters if they don't agree with their message and how they're going about expressing their concerns or disagreements about how the governments across the country are handling COVID-19. David Harsani has written about this topic, and we will talk with him about Facebook and more, particularly Facebook's war against free speech in this instance, in the next segment. And then Fahad Nazer will join us. He is the spokesperson, the official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk a little bit about how the Saudis are handling COVID-19. There is a truce in Yemen right now as well in that war over COVID-19. Because of COVID-19, we will talk with the spokesperson about that and how that came about. We will also discuss a little bit about the oil deal that was reached and what's been going on with oil prices. That should be a fascinating aspect of the discussion. And in addition, I'm looking forward to talking with him about the changing dynamics in the Middle East. We've talked about it before, for example, with former Ambassador Sam Zakham here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. But the changing dynamics in the Middle East under President Trump from how things were previously under Barack Obama. It is really fascinating and very striking. But first, let's talk a little bit about some of the reopen America questions that are going on. A couple of Democratic politicians that have been saying things that I think uh, deserve a little bit of response. And let's jump right to the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. And this is cut 11. And she was on CNN, I think just yesterday, and had this to say about the prospect of businesses reopening. 
And then what protocols can we take to mitigate that risk? So when it's safe to re-engage, that we have a thoughtful, data-driven, rigorous plan to keep the public safe. I think that going too fast will be harder for businesses uh, to have the confidence of the public to come in anyway. If you're not um, guaranteeing or able to show the thoughtful plan that's gone into people's safety, um, I think that it's going to be hard to get people to come out and participate anyway. So we got to get this right so we don't have a second wave. So here you've got Whitmer presupposing that she knows what won't get customers to go out to businesses more than what won't. That is to say, if her authority as governor leads people to conclude, okay, we can open up now, we can start resuming business activity, then businesses will get their customers. Maybe that's true. Maybe they're average everyday Americans in Michigan or elsewhere who will hear a governor say, yes, it's okay, it's safe to reopen. Go ahead, you have our blessing. And then that will give them some incentives, some encouragement. But you can't, first of all, guarantee that. People will still make their own judgments, number one. Number two, she's presupposing that the government giving its blessing, giving its official okay, is the only way in which these businesses should reboot or get going again, because otherwise they should just wait it out until Whitmer herself decrees, yes, it's time to open up. Go for it. That is to say that she doesn't think that businesses can make the decision themselves because they don't know what circumstances will bring in the most customers. But that's beside the point. Once you get to the point where it is acceptable and reasonable to start reopening, it's not that these companies will have to reopen. It's not that these companies will automatically make the decision to reopen their businesses. They will look at the landscape and they will draw their own conclusions. Is it time to open up? What things do I need to have in place to make customers feel like it's okay to come on into my shop? What will get customers to feel comfortable? She's presupposing that the only way customers will feel comfortable and people will want to go into business is if she gives the okay. Now, of course, it's not the case that people will necessarily think, oh, the governor said, yes, it's time, so I'm going to go in. But also, she's taking on herself the responsibility of concluding whether or not a business will be able to draw that conclusion for themselves, which is hubris. It's hubris when a government official who thinks they are all-knowing and all-powerful gets in their head and in their mind that the only way in which customers will come out is if I say so, and the only way in which businesses should operate is if I think that their customers are going to want to come in. Don't let the businesses make that decision at all at any point. Governor Whitmer has to make that decision. I think that is a sure sign of hubris. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this is cut two. Of course, the congresswoman from New York's 14th Congressional District, uh, she had this to say in an in interview, I think it was just yesterday. I think when we talk about this idea of reopening society, you know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have this discussion about going, going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. First of all, AOC is making a broad generalization that even, it sounds like a majority of Americans are suffering with 70-hour work weeks and would be better off just staying at home. So not only are many of these left-wing Democrats saying, hey, trust us, we can go four months with, that, with a shutdown because 
we will know when it's best to reopen. Trust us, because we can provide for you for months. But here you've got a sitting congresswoman saying, eh, you shouldn't want to clamor to go back to work. Not unless we have these radical left-wing changes that I think are the best way to go. Otherwise, why would you want to go back to work? Well, maybe because there are a lot of people who find fulfillment in a good, hard day's work, who find fulfillment in building up their small business or helping the company that they work for grow. She may not experience that herself. She may not know many people in her own liberal circles who feel that way, but I know a lot of Americans who do from all sides of the political spectrum, mind you. Again, hubris on display from our politicians. we got to run to a break. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. When we return, we will be joined by none other than senior writer at National Review, David Harsani, who will be joining us to talk a little bit about what's happening as far as Facebook versus free speech over the coronavirus protests. And then we will talk with the official spokesperson for the Saudi Arabian Embassy in Washington, D.C. Keep it right here. Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Ladies and gentlemen, back to your host, Jimmy at the Crossroads, Jimmy Sagenberger. Nathan Matouche, producer extraordinaire, working the Matouche magic once again as we continue on Jimmy at the Crossroads. I am Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program. Coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. So great to be with you on this Thursday, April 23rd. Coming up in the next segment, we'll be joined by Fahad Nazer, who is the official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation with him on several different topics. And tomorrow, we will be joined here on the show by EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. Looking forward to talking about Earth Week and the Trump administration's policies on the environment. It will be our first Free to Choose Friday, working up some other great guests for tomorrow as well. But first, one of the issues that seems to be under siege in many different aspects of American society right now is free speech and the ability for people to express themselves, their concerns, their thoughts, their feelings about issues of the day if it goes against some sort of mold that you shouldn't be going against. Facebook is providing a case in point of this, multiple reports now from Facebook that uh, are about Facebook, suppressing protests that are notifications, groups, Facebook groups that are trying to put together these reopen America rallies and stay at home order protests across the country. Now we can debate and hash out the merits of these protests, but should they be blocking on Facebook these individuals? How should they be approaching protests with which they disagree? David Harsani is a senior writer at the National Review, and he joins us now having written about this very topic to discuss. David, welcome to Jimmy at the Crossroads. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'll play Mark Zuckerberg talking about this in just a moment, but what do you make of the overall dynamic of free speech online today, of which I think this is a part? Well, I am not one who believes that we should be interfering in um, the, the contours of what's acceptable speeches on social media platforms. I think there's enough competition where you don't want the government being empowered to do that sort of thing because they will use that power in the future in ways you might not like. So just as a sort of principled, I have a principled objection to that. Uh, should they, I think they should have a dispassionate view of speech because I think if they're really just a platform for, you know, for interactions and speech of different kinds of speech that they shouldn't try to make, uh, you know, judgment calls on what's acceptable and what's not unless it's something abusive. However, if, like it has seemingly now worked with states, and it's a little bit unclear to me whether they approach the states for guidance or the states approach them uh, to undermine people who are trying to meet and protest the government. Um, 
I'm not saying that my view of the of how we should handle them changes, but clearly they're okay with the government telling them what to do. And for me, that's a problem. That's a problematic policy. Yeah, I'm not so surprised about Facebook being okay with the government telling them what to do. I mean, we can recall a couple of years ago now, Mark Zuckerberg testified before the United States Senate, and he said, if it's the right regulation, I'm good with that kind of regulation. So the idea that a lot of these big tech companies are opposed to regulation, if they can have a seat at the table and help decide how that operates or work in concert with government to preclude regulation, but do what the governments would like, that doesn't come as a surprise to me. No, of course not. They want the government to dictate what the contours of speech are because it, it relieves them of the responsibility exactly. of doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's all kinds of rent seeking and, and, and other things that go on with big giant corporations, with these social, which these social media companies are. So clearly, uh, Facebook would like more regulations as long as it didn't undermine the bottom line. So yeah, I mean, you're right about that. I'm just uh, being somewhat facetious about it. I think uh, you know, they probably have always worked with government entities to to uh, to deal with speech. I just think that when you have something so such a clear undermining of the ability of people to protest, or you work in concert with a local government in, in, in trying to undermine the ability of people to get together and protest government policy of the state that you're that they're working with, it it just it's just wrong on many levels. I don't know if it's illegal, but it's certainly an, a, a way to undermine free expression in, in, in I, you know, in the way that we view it, in the constitutional view, perhaps not the letter of the law. Let's hear from Mark Zuckerberg on ABC. This is cut three on ABC News, where he was specifically asked about how he's handling these protests online. Uh, we'll get that clip going. How do you deal with the fact that Facebook is now being used to organize a lot of these protests to defy social distancing, defy the social distancing guidelines in states? Is somebody trying to organize something like that, does that qualify as harmful information? We do classify that as harmful misinformation, and we take that down. Um, At the same time, you know, it's important that people can debate policies, so there's a line on this. But, you know, more than normal political discourse, I think a lot of the uh, stuff that people are saying that is false around a health emergency like this can be classified as um, is, is, is harmful misinformation. What do you make of that? I mean, he's trying to present it as though he's doing the responsible thing, making sure that the public isn't getting harmful misinformation from these protesters and rally goers. When we do know that there is some of that out there. Well, First of all, the, the entire framing of the question was wrong. Uh, the, they're not getting together to break social distancing uh, guidelines. And some obviously did, but many of them were uh, protesting the idea that the state can tell them what they can buy in a box store or wh- where they can go to church or if they can do a drive up mass for Easter or if they can protest. So the idea that, that uh, the protesters were only engaged in trying to undermine guidelines that are already set is wrong. They want new guidelines. They want different sorts of things. That's first of all. Secondly, it is rather, I think, funny that uh, Facebook believes that it can control that kind of speech and this, you know, uh, factually incorrect, you know, theorizing, rumor mongering, whatever it is during an emergency, but then lead people as they do to the World Health Organization site to give them reliable information when we know that it was groups like WHO working in conjunction with China that undermined our ability to save thousands of lives. Uh, you know, when this was first breaking out, when coronavirus was first breaking out. So that I think just setting aside anything, you know, anything to do with free expression shows how difficult it is to try to control the actions of literally billions of people, I think, are on Facebook, right? And in what is proper or what is factual or reliable. That's why you want to, you should just keep it an open debate. Yeah, the, the whole point that you raise about the World Health Organization, which has an absolute crisis of credibility at a minimum, to be sure, That is such, I think, a profound point because when we're looking at what's happening right now vis-a-vis Facebook making determinations about what's credible, what's not, what's misinformation, what's accurate information, and yet they're highlighting the WHO, that seems like a a blatant contradiction to be sure and also something where it makes you wonder – 
how reliable is Facebook? I mean, I'm sure we were wondering it already, but how reliable is a company like Facebook at actually determining what information is accurate and credible and what's not? I would say not reliable at all, right? I mean, no offense to young people, but you know, having a bunch of young, I assume young people just monitoring what people say and deciding what's right or wrong is an idiotic way to approach uh, a platform. But more than that, I think, you know, listen, I'm not saying everything the who says is unreliable. Clearly they are reliable, but if there are people out there who think that, I'm just gonna say this because I saw it as an example in one of the pieces, if someone's saying, hey, if you drink some bleach, you're going to be okay, and then someone drinks bleach, you know, I, I think at some point that's just on them, right? I, we can't, you can't teach stupid, and there are going to be stupid people out there who believe ridiculous things. It's always been the way, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for them, but this, that's just how life works. If someone's willing to drink bleach right now because of coronavirus, they're probably willing to do a lot of stupid things that they shouldn't be doing. Again, we're talking with David Arsani, senior writer at the National Review here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Okay, so I agree with what you're saying. However, some would critique it and say, well, Facebook isn't standing up for free speech. Then the government should step in and force them to do so, which is interesting given that at the same time, Facebook is looking to government for guidance on these things and oftentimes coordinating with governments on what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, what they'd like, what they didn't, wouldn't like, just as you and I were talking about a moment ago. So how do you think the free speech online issue, because this is a much broader question than just COVID-19 shutdown protests and rallies, uh, how do you think that the, this fits in and, and what people should keep in mind as we talk about moving forward, the free speech debate when it comes to online outlets like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter and what have you? Obviously, it's pretty complicated, and, it, and obviously, the, the Twitter and Facebook, among you know, and YouTube, have acted have acted in ways that are ideological in, in what, when they you know in determining whose speech is okay and whose speech isn't okay. I mean, that seems clear to me that if Hamas or other terrorist groups can have Twitter accounts, but you know, right wing you know kooks can't. I, I you know I think that that shows uh, a bias that 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 shouldn't exist. Um, so I think it's bad public policy, bad corporate policy for them to get involved in speech in that way, because I can curate my own uh, experience on Twitter by blocking people, by following people, things like that. I think that they should improve those. But these are just things I think they should do. Uh, I, what I always worry about is when I hear someone saying that government is going to come in and th make things fairer, I would just ask someone to show me where that's ever happened. Government right. will not make it fairer. Government will start to impose its own uh, ideals and morals on the conversation. And I think that this is something people should worry about, even conservatives who are upset about how Twitter is acting uh, or, or Facebook should worry that uh, once government is empowered to dictate what's what appropriate speech is, it's going to dictate what appropriate speech is moving forward. And you might not like what those lines look like. Right. So I would much rather prefer that we open, try to open these things up to more competition and, and see what happens in that way. But I admit that a lot like Google and YouTube, these people have do dominate the marketplace in a way that is, is, is nearly like a monopoly. But, but I don't think it is yet at least from my perspective. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we're at anopoly, monopoly levels yet either, David Harsani. But one thing that comes to mind always when I think about the idea of uh, conservatives, for example, who advocate for government stepping in to protect free speech is that, look, government has force, monopoly on force. That's the definition of government. So government can actually force certain activities. Facebook doesn't force you and cannot force you to use its service, nor can Twitter, nor can YouTube. Now, you may feel like you have to use those services, but that doesn't mean that you must. However, when the government steps in and starts dictating certain things related to speech, you can't say no or decline that because government actually has the force of law in a way that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube never could. I mean, yeah, I think that that's an argument that we should be making or some of us should be making because, uh, you know, against the populist idea that corporations are just as... Uh, you know, nefarious or not that they're just as nefarious, but they have just as much power as government over your lives. No, they do not. First of all, corporations, you know, rise and die all the time. You know, when you get older, you realize that. But more than that, they, as you mentioned, do not have the power of force. They can't compel you to do things. I'm not on Facebook anymore, and I'm very happy not to be on there. And my life is no worse. I don't need Facebook to live. 
I need water, I might need you know roads I, and other things in the world, but I certainly don't need Facebook and others in the social media sphere compete with them, like you know Twitter or, or, or others, so Instagram, whatever it is. Obviously, they're not all exactly the same, but the idea is the same, that you're communicating with a bunch of people on this platform. So, um, but I, I don't want to dismiss that I think what they're doing is problematic. I do. I just don't have a solution, you know, a solution to how to deal with it. I think you don't yeah. want to make, you know, turn to a solution that becomes worse than the problem. And we've done that many times in many areas. So, um, but I am, I think it is problematic that, that, that uh, you know, that Facebook feels a need to listen to the state to undermine speech. Yeah. It should not have, it should not do that. And, uh, I, I, I think that if there was an up, if there's anger among its consumers, it may do less of that, and, and, you know. Exactly. So, but and I don't have some easy, there's no easy answer to it. it. It is pushing back against the companies. That is the way in which we can have a voice when they do something that we think is wrong as far as policy. Now, whether or not they're going to listen is a, is a different story. Uh, David Harsani, just a few minutes left with you again, our guest senior writer at National Review. I want to read a paragraph from your piece, Facebook Fails the Coronavirus Test, specifically where, we're, where you focus on something a little bit broader than just the Facebook issue, but on the whole question of reopening. You say, in reality, the economy is going to reopen only when most people either feel safe enough to emerge from isolation or calculate that the risk of emerging is worthwhile. Arbitrary deadlines mean little. I suspect that the best way to temper anger surrounding the lockdowns would be for local leaders to stop acting like a bunch of petty authoritarians when the vast majority of citizens are already voluntarily doing what the government is asking to protect themselves. I think that's a fundamental point because there's this presumption that seems to be going about that if states start to reopen, and I'm here in Colorado where our governor surprisingly is actually following through with his pledge to begin reopening starting in the next week or so, that that, that means all the companies will suddenly reopen. That's not the case. Companies will make their own determinations whether or not it's time. And then consumers will make the judgment themselves. Do they want to go out there? And I think that's a fundamentally important point that we're losing in this discussion right now, David. Yeah, I think there's two points there. One is that people will decide in the sense that uh, Donald Trump might say, hey, Easter, we're going we're gonna to all come out and then change his mind because it doesn't work that way. You can't just uh, give me a date that's neat you know, works out for you in your in, in your rhetoric. I'm not just picking on Donald Trump. I think many uh, governors and other people have, have given arbitrary deadlines, sometimes really far away. Well, I think this is just a way for them to to speak to to folks and give the, try to give them some sort of guidance, but I don't think that that's how it's going to work. And then the other end of this, though, is what I notice a lot is that people can't tell the difference between convincing us and coercing us. There's nothing wrong with telling people to stay indoors, and they should. And most people, when you look at polls, think it's the right thing to do, and most people do it. But then, you know, on the other hand, there's a difference when you start telling people they have to do it, that they can't buy seeds, that they can't go to a, a mass, that they can't do this, they can't do that. I, I think that it's those petty authoritarian, arbitrary and uh, unilateral, you know, got laws basically, but they're not passed laws, but just unilateral actions by governors is what really sort of sparked this anger, which I think is, uh, is uh, wholly uh, uh, applicable to the situation. Meaning I think that, you know, when, when people tell you you can't go to church, I think you have every right to protest. That's what, uh, that's what you should do. And obviously I'm not saying that everyone does this. I think many uh, police forces and mayors are, are great about it, but you know, in Brighton, they were, Colorado, they arrested a woman, uh, a dad who was playing t-ball in a park. I mean, that's the sort of thing that angers folks. With a six-year-old kid. Right. When no one's near them or you can't surf in the ocean when no one's near you. You can't hike on millions of acres of land when there's no one near you. I mean, these are, uh, these are, are, are things that overstep common sense and also the law, especially when you tell people they can't protest. You know, the Constitution isn't suspended because of a pandemic. So, right. I think that it's those are the people to blame for these protests, yeah, the, not so much the protesters. Philip Rucker on MSNBC the other day, and we played the, this clip in the last couple of days, but 
he literally said their right to protest goes against the social distancing guidelines. Well, maybe so, maybe not, depending on how they actually are engaging in that protest, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't exercise their right or are not allowed to exercise their right to protest. But something else that I'm noticing is going on, and you referenced this as well in your piece for National Review the other day, David Hosani, is that you have now New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio encouraging snitching on neighbors. You have a mayor in New Jersey who literally is having drones monitor people and find out whether or not they are following the social distancing guidelines, interestingly enough, using Chinese technology that I think the Pentagon won't even use. What do you make of that aspect of this, where now you have not just the idea of social pressure in general, but actually have government using its force or its encouragement to monitor people and get them to uh, follow through with what the government's saying they should do? Well, I think, curiously enough, it's a civics problem because you have mayors and governors speaking like they think that they that our, our, our right to free expression comes from them or from some law or from government. It doesn't. I don't care what the, the, the local government has some control over public health so it can limit things that so you don't hurt the community. But it has a right to make a blanket pronunciation that you're not allowed to speak out about policy, especially policy especially the very policy that, that inhibits you from doing that. I don't, a Kentucky mayor doesn't give me my right to freedom of religion. You know, that's a right that I have innately. That's what differentiates this country from other countries, what makes us unique. And I, I'm not surprised that some reporter on MSNBC doesn't understand that, but I am surprised that people who, um, who swear on, on the constitution to protect the constitution when they come into office say things like i wasn't thinking about the bill of rights when i when i you know banned protests as that new jersey mayor did i mean it's just um it's inexplicable in in in, in not just what they're doing but that how they talk about it and it shows a lack of understanding for the constitution and you know i hate to sound like some idealist but i mean there are things it's of course human life is important we're going through something terrible here Right. But it's not the only thing. We still have laws. If we can just make laws as we go along, whenever every emergency comes along, then they don't mean laws. Laws mean nothing. Well, it, and, it goes, uh, yeah, David, yeah. it goes to what James Madison said. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. But if angels were to govern men, neither ex internal nor external controls upon them would be necessary. Almost an exact quote. I try to remember it. But uh, but I think it, it's so brilliant. It goes fundamentally to what the the type of constitution we have in our country is about. Uh, finally, I, since we both mentioned MSNBC, I really liked this montage. This is cut seven that Tucker Carlson had the other night uh, talking about how, uh, well, showing how MSNBC has been not only criticizing these protesters and blasting them, but accusing them of racism. What is it that they're trying to channel here? Is this, is this sort of neo-confederacy? And what the hell does that have to do with a pandemic? America first is a phrase that was used by Charles Lindbergh and the, the Nazi sympathizers uh, in 1939, 1940-41. It became President Trump's uh, rallying cry. You have that on the right. When I look at these protests, what I see are a bunch of white people essentially saying, oh, it's affecting those people, so why do I have to change my life for them? Let's be honest about what they are. They are the Fox News, Nazi Confederate, death cult rump of the Republican Party. It's not that hard, unfortunately, to, to turn a health crisis into a racial ethnic crisis. I think that what they're saying quite clearly when you see the numbers, when you see the statistics, when you see the CDC data is, I want more black and brown people to die. Right? That, that can't, if you want the government to open up, then you want more black and brown people to die. All right, David Harsani, what do you make of that? I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's uh, stupid, right? <laughs> so the way to put it. That's a nice way of putting it. There were saying, and they were saying very stupid things. But um, more than that, I think that uh, it's intellectual laziness, right? Where you can't make arguments anymore. So the only, you, you know, you immediately go to the one, you know, to the, rape, to the emotionalist argument, racism. Uh, I, I, uh, I think that that's what's happening. And it's what's been happening for a long time. The idea that, you know, 
uh, putting America first is immediately tied, you know, that a 25-year-old that a who wears a red baseball hat is immediately tied to Charles Lindbergh is, is, is a ridiculous uh, thing. And that was probably the most cogent uh, or the most uh, rational thing that was said through those clips. So I don't really know how to answer it. It's just idiotic. And there's no really way to push back against it, right? Because all you can say is I'm not racist. And once you say that, you're already putting yourself in a defensive position that you shouldn't even have to be in. So not saying there are no racists, by the way, there are, but uh, I think that the vast majority of Americans don't think like that. David Harsani, senior writer at the National Review. Great insights today. Really appreciate you joining us. Please stay well and healthy, and thanks for coming on, Jimmy, at the Crossroads. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Once again, David Harsani of the National Review, where he is a senior writer, joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. And really, fundamentally, we have something going on here in this country with regards to free speech, whether it is Facebook trying to silence speech on these stay-at-home orders that they disagree with, that they think is wrong, or we have governments across the country various states and municipalities that are saying, no, you cannot protest. You might be arrested. I think one woman was arrested in New Jersey, if I recall correctly, for exactly this, protesting the audacity to actually exercise a constitutionally protected natural right to speak out against authority or to speak your mind on whatever. When that's happening with government force or with social media or with the media trying to mock and malign people in order to get them to go in line, you know that something is off here. All right, we'll see what happens moving forward. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, Fahad Nazer is going to join us. He is the official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Got several different topics we're going to talk about with the spokesperson. Looking forward to talking with Fahad here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Don't go anywhere. You do not want to miss this. And by the way, during the video break, we've got a little bit of a primer on some of the changing dynamics in the Middle East and the president's, uh, that is President Trump's Middle East peace plan. Stay tuned. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get back to your host of Jimmy at the Crossroads, Jimmy Sagenberger. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Indeed, I am Jimmy Sangenberger. Pleasure and a privilege to be with you today, bringing you engaging, intelligent talk, saying style, day in and day out, again, in partnership with the Washington Examiner, doing our level best to make sense out of nonsense and to have important conversations that I think are essential to understanding not just what's happening here in the United States, but also on the global stage. And there are a lot of things that are going on across the world with various countries and various relationships between those countries and the United States. That's why I'm very pleased to welcome onto the show the official spokesperson for the embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., to talk a little bit about some of the issues going on as far as oil price. That's an issue of concern, what's happening with COVID-19 and how that's being handled in the Middle East, as well as the changing and, I would say, improving relationship between the United States and our partners in the Middle East. Fahad Nazer is the official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., and he joins us now here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Sir, can you hear me? And welcome to the show. Uh, yes, I can. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. So let me just ask you, first of all, because we're seeing this coronavirus pandemic impact people all across the globe. It has no national borders. How is Saudi Arabia handling this COVID-19 crisis? Right. So the kingdom is doing everything it can to protect the health and well-being of both Saudi citizens and residents in the kingdom. I think that the Saudi leadership determined very early on that this virus had the potential to be 
a pandemic the likes of which the international community had not seen in a long time. And therefore, we acted very quickly and we acted decisively. We took some very important precautionary measures to prevent the virus from spreading inside the kingdom. So, for example, we closed all schools and universities. We suspended international and domestic flights. We also instituted a curfew in most major cities. We also suspended visits to the holy mosques in both uh, Mecca and Medina. And I think as a result of all these um, early and decisive measures, we have been uh, fairly successful in containing the virus inside the kingdom. So when it comes to COVID-19, I mean, obviously there are a lot of internal matters and in how each country handles their own affairs. You were just explaining what the kingdom is doing internally. There are also situations since they cross borders, different crises, different wars and incursions around the globe that are taking place. Of course, Saudi Arabia has been engaged in Yemen and there's a ceasefire going on now as a result of COVID-19. I want to ask you a two-part question, sir. The first is, if you could explain to us uh, what Saudi Arabia has been doing in Yemen and then also the nature of the ceasefire that's happening, why, the, why and how that came about. Right. So uh, if I could just add, since you said, uh, since we are talking about COVID and you're absolutely yes. right, this is a pandemic in every sense of the word, I think it's important to mention that the kingdom is the president of the G20 group this year. So in our capacity as president, we actually held a virtual, a special virtual summit of the leaders of the group back in, uh, in March to focus the international uh, community's attention on, on finding a coordinated response. So uh, after the meeting was uh, convened and the uh, member countries resolved to uh, do a, a number of very, very important things, including sharing critical information that will help us understand how the virus acts and how it travels. They also resolved to exchange um, material that is necessary to protect healthcare workers. They've uh, resolved to increase research and developments on therapeutics and potential vaccines and things like that. Um, a week later, actually it was last week, the Kingdom pledged $500 million in support of this international uh, effort that, that will be going towards developing and uh, deploying new diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. Um, so that's that's very important. Obviously, this has been the main story for uh, for much of the world, and uh, the kingdom is no exception. Now, when it comes to uh, Yemen, obviously Yemen has been in the news for um, for a long time. It is a complicated uh, crisis and conflict, as is the case with uh, frankly with all conflicts. But what I'll I'll try to summarize it this way: What the kingdom wants. It's very simple. It wants a stable and secure Yemen. Uh, it is uh, obviously a, a, a neighbor of ours. It's an important country. We have been supporting the internationally recognized government of Yemen to push back against these incursions uh, by this Iranian-backed military uh, militant group known as the, the Houthis. The uh, Saudi Arabia did not start war. Did not start this war. We did not want it. It was a war of necessity. It was not a war of choice. But we are doing everything we can to help restore peace and stability uh, back to Yemen, including supporting all the efforts of the United Nations and the United Nations Special Envoy, Martin Griffith, who is trying very hard to bring the, the warring parties back to their negotiating table in Yemen. Again, we're talking with the official spokesperson for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C., Fahad Nazer here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Uh, I want to ask you for your thoughts. I mean, we've seen a couple of different congressional resolutions that have been passed against the United States support, American support from the Trump administration of Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen. Uh, what have you made of those resolutions, and what do you make of President Trump uh, continuing to say, no to Congress on those congressional resolutions and maintain support in Yemen? Well, I think that the Trump administration has um, uh, a very good understanding of that danger that the kingdom faces, uh, not just in Yemen, but in general. It's unfortunately the Middle East is a, is a dangerous region. Uh, the Houthi rebels, which are backed by uh, Iran, Iran has, has had this project for the past 40, 40 years. It started it in Lebanon by creating this militant uh, non-state actor known as Hezbollah. It is trying to do the same thing 
in Yemen, and is, that is simply not acceptable for us. I think that the United States and Saudi Arabia are in complete alignment when it comes to uh, stabilizing Yemen because we see it as, um, as having the potential to, unfortunately, there's, there's a potential of being another failed state, a state that can provide safe haven to terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, but also it could potentially be fall prey to the machinations and the, the expansionist designs of Iran, which has been wreaking havoc in the region for the past 40 years. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia are working very closely on stabilizing Yemen, but they're also working very closely together on countering the threat that the entire region faces from Iran. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the dynamics in the Middle East vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Fahad Nazar, our guest from the embassy in Saudi Arabia, uh, the Saudi Arabian embassy in D.C., who is the official spokesperson there. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed in the Trump administration over the past few years is a new and stronger understanding of the threat that Iran has posed to the region and to the world. It's something that clearly, uh, you know, Gulf Arab states and Israel have been aligned on more and more closely it seems. And here, our president has worked very hard to foster a stronger relationship, it seems, with our, our Arab partners and also helping to bring the Arab nations, such as Saudi Arabia, with uh, more closely with Israel, particularly because of this common threat of Iran, which is opposed to the Obama administration, which really worked hard to get that Iranian nuclear deal put together, which clearly I means Saudi Arabia, Israel, other Gulf Arab states. We're recognizing, hey, this is not working, this nuclear deal. The Trump administration clearly recognized that as well and withdrew. I wonder if you could please tell us a little bit more about how the kingdom views the threat of Iran and also how the United States now under the Trump administration has been approaching that threat and overall relations with Arab states such as Saudi Arabia. Right. So Iran really has sought to destabilize the entire Middle East and to provoke conflict for the past 40 years. It has violated every law, every convention, and every norm of the international community. It has supported militant groups around the world, back terrorist attacks in places as, as varied as Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Kuwait, Iraq, Argentina, France, Germany, and even here, right here in Washington, D.C., where uh, about 10 years ago they tried to assassinate uh, the uh, former Saudi ambassador to, to Washington. So they have no limits. They have sought and continue to destabilize the region. Um, most recently, they obviously orchestrated this attack on our oil infrastructure back in September of last year. This was not simply an attack against uh, Saudi Arabia. It was an attack against the entire global economy. Unfortunately, this is simply what they do. They, For whatever reason, they thrive on on chaos. They want to uh, destabilize uh, the global economies, not just the economies of the region. And um, the two main countries that have been standing in, in the face and countering these uh, nefarious activities have been Saudi Arabia and the United States. And we have been working on it very, very closely together for many years. Saudi Arabia fully supports the Trump administration's maximum pressure uh, approach. We fully support the economic sanctions because, unfortunately, Iran, the Iranian regime, I should say, does not respond well to uh, carrots. It only responds to uh, sticks. Now, in terms of the relationship with the United States under the Trump administration, as I mentioned before, we are seeing a little bit more of, a, uh, of at least, let's say, congeniality a little bit uh, with Israel and nations like Saudi Arabia, especially because we recognize that there is a common enemy in Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about how the kingdom views its current relations with Israel, especially over the past two or three years? Well, the kingdom doesn't have any relations with it with Israel. Uh, the kingdom's policy towards the peace process has been very consistent, uh, going back certainly back to 2002 when uh, the late King uh, Abdullah presented the Arab peace process back then. That offer is still on the table. It does provide a path forward for a two-state solution. It provides a path forward for a, for a comprehensive and just peace for both Israel and uh, Palestinians to live side by side. We have not changed our, that position. We are hoping that um, the Israelis and Palestinians 
go back to the negotiating table to uh, to end this conflict. Obviously, it has been the source of so much, um, fr frankly, hardship and suffering in the region, but it has also provided fodder for terrorist groups and militant groups that pay lip service to it to try to recruit uh, and to radicalize young men, men across the region. So the Middle East, will, it will be very difficult for the Middle East to have any semblance of peace and stability until that, that conflict is resolved. What do you make and what does the kingdom make at this point of the president, uh, President Trump's peace to prosperity plan, the Middle East peace proposal that he has put forward? One last question relative to that topic. Sure. I mean, the United States, we view the United States as one of our strongest and closest uh, partners and allies. The U.S. is a force of good in the world, and it is certainly a force of good in the Middle East. It has played a role in uh, inking peace agreements that are related to this uh, main conflict between Israel and, and, and Palestine. Obviously, the U.S. played a role in the peace agreements between Israel and uh, Jordan, and Egypt before that, we fully anticipate that the U.S. will play a constructive role in, uh, in getting this most important agreement between the two main uh, adversaries in this crisis as well. Again, we're talking with Fahad Nazer, who is the official spokesperson for the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Just a few minutes left with you, sir, and I want to shift, of course, to news that has been on top of mind for global markets for weeks, once again kind of heating up a little bit. This week has been the price of oil, oil production. Just a couple of weeks ago, a deal was struck, United States helping to facilitate a deal with OPEC, Saudi Arabia, of course, leading member of OPEC, and also uh, Russia in terms of cutting production. Can you tell us a little bit about how that deal came about and what Saudi Arabia's view is on the reduction in production at this point in time? I have seen reports that perhaps we may see OPEC reduce production a little earlier than originally anticipated, especially as we're seeing this uh, re reduction or decline in the price of oil of late this week. Right. So the kingdom has always put a high premium on stable international energy markets. It has always promoted moderate prices that are fair to both producers and consumers. And it has also stressed the importance of burden sharing among producers for the long-term stability of, of markets. As you said, Saudi Arabia was instrumental in inking this historic agreement uh, among the OPEC plus nations that reduced production by 12.5 million barrels a day. We have also secured additional commitments from some of our G20 uh, partners for about, uh, for a little over uh, 3 million barrels more. We are continuing to, ha to have discussions, as you said, with, uh, with other nations, including with the United States, to see uh, what's the best way to stabilize prices and to stabilize markets. Um, oil is an international commodity. It is traded in, in international markets. Uh, and this steep decline will absolutely need a, a global response. And I think we're making progress. Um, it's my understanding that oil prices went up significantly today, and hopefully that's a good sign. Uh, just also on this topic, one of the issues that countries across the globe, the United States companies in the realm of oil, as well as Saudi Arabia and others that are saying, okay, we're going to reduce the amount of oil that's being put under the market. One of the ways in which that's being done is to store oil. Can you give us any insights into how Saudi Arabia is looking at storing oil, or is it just going to be a reduction in production? I and mean, that's something that a lot of market analysts are curious about. Right, so our main remedy, and what this is what we've proposed to every other country, is obviously a reduction in production. And I think we went the uh, agreement that was agreed to on April 14th was really historic in every sense of the word. Uh, I think it's a very good, uh, necessary, and, and first step. But I think we there is room for further cuts. The uh, kingdom itself is going beyond the commitments that it has already made. Uh, just to bring to help bring back stability to the markets. Now, having said all that, I think the we cannot overlook the fact that this COVID-19 pandemic has really put a tremendous strain on the global economy, and uh, one of the things that it obviously impacted is a reduction in demand for oil. It has reduced it, reduced uh, demand by possibly as much as 30 percent globally. So, um, you know, this is really the, the the main challenge we have 
So, you know, this is an added incentive for us to, uh, to get all our resources together to try to uh, stop the spread of this uh, virus that is, sure. frankly, wreaking havoc around the world. Uh, and finally, Fahad Nazer, our guest, very much appreciate the time, official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Obviously, the Middle East, as all regions are, is a very complicated place. And there are a lot of things that the American people have as far as understandings of our relationship with Saudi Arabia and with other nations there. What do you think the American people should know about the partnership in some areas that the United States has with Saudi Arabia, especially as many are concerned and say, hey, we have too close ties with Saudi Arabia. Just give, give a little message from the kingdom, please, on, on that regard, why this relationship with the United States is important and of value to both sides. Sure. So this year actually marks the 75th anniversary of the historic meeting between the late King Abdelaziz uh, bin Saud, who uh, was the founder of modern-day Saudi Arabia, and the late President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt aboard the USS Quincy. In the 75 years since, this relationship has continued to deepen and to broaden and to strengthen under both Democratic and Republican administrations, I might add. Uh, I think the relationship is many ways multidimensional. It has political, military, security, and economic components. We have accomplished a great deal over the past 75 years. Uh, for one, we defeated global communism together. We have expelled, we expelled the invading forces of Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. We helped the, the United States and Saudi Arabia work very closely to defeat and to expel the terrorist group ISIS from Syria and Iraq. We have also worked and we continue to work very closely on countering Iran's malign activities in the, uh, in the Middle East and beyond. This is a great relationship. It is mutually beneficial, and we certainly look forward to it continuing to strengthen and to broaden. Fahad Nazer, official spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. I really appreciate your time. I know we went a little longer, but thanks for bearing with us, and I hope this is the first of many conversations we can have. Yes, please. I really enjoyed talking to you, and please, I'd love to come back and uh, talk some more. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you taking the time, and stay well and be healthy. Thanks. Same to you. Once again, Fahad Nazer joining us from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He's the official spokesperson of their embassy in Washington, D.C. Very interesting conversation, to be sure. Uh, so many different facets to these issues. It is a complicated region, to be sure. One thing that I think is, is striking, we didn't really talk about Mohammed bin Salman, uh, in the interview, but he is the crown prince. He's next in line uh, to to be in charge of Saudi Arabia. And he is a millennial. He's about 34 years old, and I think his outlook and things can be a little bit different uh, in terms of opening up to um, the ability for women to drive and some other rights and freedoms in the kingdom. It's been very interesting to see some of the changing dynamics there. I think he's been instrumental in some of the um, thawing of communications, perhaps, with, with Israel a little bit, but also in terms of um, really working with the Trump administration on developing certain policies. Now, this is, as I said, a complicated region. There are a lot of different facets to this. We will talk more in the coming weeks and months about what the relationship is between the United States and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf Arab states because it is not cut and dry. And that's often what we see here in the United States are discussions about, hey, these guys are not in step with American values in this way and that way, and therefore we should have no relationship with them. Yet at the same time, those individuals say, hey, we should have a stronger relationship with Iran and have a nuclear deal, so on and so forth. The reality is that you are going to have the same similar kinds of structures of government where regimes have maximum authority in the Middle East for most countries. It's in essence what you're going to do. The question is, which nations tend to support American interests? Which nations tend to go against American interests? And I would certainly say, in my view, that... Iran consistently and always goes against American interests. And I would say, not just in my view, it is the case. The facts demonstrate this, and that is why the United States has been involved in Yemen and elsewhere against the Iranian regime. 
which not only is seeking nuclear weapons, but is also working in the region and around the globe, contrary to American interests. And the biggest reason why we see, whether the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia wants to call it relations with Israel or not, there's at least dialogue that has been opening up. And the biggest reason for that is because they see a common enemy and a common threat in Iran and with good reason. So I do hope this is the first of many conversations that we can have with representatives of Saudi Arabia here on Jimmy at the Crossroads because I think we need to have these dialogues and conversations and grow over time. Well, that is it for us today. We will be back tomorrow with our first Free to Choose Friday. We will have one or two guests from the American Conservation Coalition, a group of millennials and Gen Zers that are working on a free market approach to the environment. Also, Andrew Wheeler, EPA Administrator, will join us as our special guest on Friday. Do not miss it. Big show. Free to Choose Friday, the first one coming up tomorrow. Be well, stay healthy. Thanks for joining us. I am Jimmy Sangenberger. Thanks to Nathan Matouche, producer extraordinaire, and of course our partners at the Washington Examiner. And as always, may God bless the United States of America.